At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, it is good to be together today, and I'm excited for the opportunity we have to open up God's Word together. Uh, last several weeks, we've been in a series that has been anchored in Matthew chapters 21 through 23, a series called Authentic, where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and he confronts the imitation religion that he finds there in the scribes and the Pharisees. And through that confrontation, we learn something about a brand or a version of religion that that we should avoid as well as we seek to have a genuine and authentic faith in Christ. We began that series a few weeks ago. We're going to continue it today in the fourth installment as we look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 22. But before we get there, I I want you just to think for a moment with me, And and this is what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what are some of the challenges that are facing the church, capital C church, not just Wildwood, but the the, the true church, all who follow Christ in the world. What are some of the big challenges that the church faces today? What are they? Just just think for a moment. Kind of begin to make a mental list. What would you put on that list? No doubt at some level you would be thinking of moral challenges from the culture around us, the the slippery slide uh, into further depravity that we we feel, right, or we talk about, we we watch on the news and in entertainment. That might be something that you think about. Or you might be thinking not so much about that, but you might be thinking about our ultimate enemy. You might be thinking of, of Satan himself and the spiritual warfare. I mean, as you know, matter of fact, the Bible would tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Maybe that is the enemy or the challenge that you would be thinking about. Or maybe you'd be thinking about government opposition to those who follow Christ. Not necessarily in the United States, though we might see hints of some of that in the near future, but we think of places around the world where it is illegal to follow Christ, places like like China and, and India and some different places where there are real challenges to especially converting to Christianity or living out your relationship with Christ in some way. And make no mistake, friends, those enemies are are real and they are present in the world in which we live. But if our list of enemies or challenges to the church only related to the, the outsiders, only was connected to things outside of the walls of organized religion, then we would be mistaken. Because there are challenges to the church today that happen inside these walls. That includes Wildwood, but it also includes everywhere the church is gathered. It's possible for for us to experience some real challenges on the inside. And we see that all the way back as Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last week of his life. You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the the last week leading up to when he would offer his life as a sacrifice on the cross, it is fascinating to me where he goes. Because when Jesus entered into this this final 
you know, ultimate stage of his earthly ministry, he did not go to the town of Beit Shean, where there was a, a giant bathhouse, a Roman bathhouse, where all kinds of decadence was happening. He did not go there to, to cleanse the culture in some way. He did not go to the Antonia Fortress, where, where Pilate's office was in the seat of Roman power, or to Caesarea, where Pilate's offices were. He did not go there to overturn Pilate's seat of authority and restore the nation of Israel to some kind of political fame or autonomy. No, Jesus goes to the temple. And in the temple, he, he cleanses the temple, something we saw three weeks ago as we began this series together. And he be- uses the harshest words that he has, not for outsiders, but for insiders. Not for those who were in the Roman culture, but for those who were in the Jewish culture, the religious culture of his day. And not only does he address his harshest comments towards the religious culture of his day, but he addresses his harshest comments for the most conservative end of the religious culture of his day. See, in Israel at the time of Christ, not everybody was the same. You know, we kind of blend them all together. They're Bible people, right? They all thought the same. They all believed the same. That's not true. In Israel at the time of Jesus, there were a number of different parties or factions, different strands of theological belief. There were some who were more liberal like the Sadducees who did not even believe in the resurrection. They they held only the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in inerrancy. They hadn't received the canon of Scripture There were the liberals like the Sadducees, but when Jesus shows up, he certainly addresses them, but his harshest words are not for the liberal end. His harshest words are for the conservative end, the Pharisees, the ones that held to the 39 books of the Old Testament, the ones who believed in the resurrection, the ones who embraced the reality that Messiah would one day come. Jesus addresses his strongest comments for them. John Walvoord says this about it. He says, no passage in the Bible, speaking here of Matthew 23, is more biting, more pointed, and more severe than his pronouncement, than this pronouncement of Christ upon the Pharisees. It is significant that he singled them out as opposed to the Sadducees who were more liberal and the Herodians who were the politicians. The Pharisees, while attempting to honor the word of God and manifesting an extreme form of religious observance, were actually the farthest from God. Friends, there were some things that the Pharisees would have gotten right on a fill-in-the-blank test theologically. They had one massive problem. You know what that problem was? You might be thinking, well, they, they, they did some bad things. Well, you know what? Everybody does bad things. It wasn't their, their, their moral decline that was the problem. You know what their problem was? They thought they could find protection from a sovereign God and his wrath inside of their religion, inside of their effort, inside of their strict adherence and interpretations. They thought that was where hope was found. And because of that, they had no hope at all. And Jesus knew that 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 spirit of religiosity was not unique to the first century but it has a temptation to pervade every generation. And Jesus speaks out sternly and strongly against it. Why? Because he doesn't want you to take 
solace and protection and find your hope in religion or in fervor in your practice of it. Jesus is very clear that that life, our hope found in those things, finds no hope for eternity at all. But there is a, a way, and that way is found in Christ himself. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' words about the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 22. This is really the beginning of a section where there are seven woes that Jesus pronounces upon, uh, upon the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I, we're preparing for this day, and Greg and I were talking about songs to sing in connection with this message today. And I said, well, there, there's three woes, so we need to get our woe-oh-oh songs in. I appreciate y'all laughing uh, at our little insider joke, but, but Jesus gives three woes. Those woes that Jesus gives are, are not the intro to a song, uh, but the woes that Jesus gives are our pronouncement of judgment, not that he's delighting in judgment that is coming upon this failed model, but it's just the reality of it. The holy and perfect Son of God looks at the state of religion in the first century, and he says, woe upon this while at the same time offering himself as the true and authentic alternative. I want to read for us these verses, and then we're going to back up, and and we're going to look at three things that we can see that Jesus says in the first three of these woes in Matthew 23. Jesus continues the conversation, the message that he had. Uh, We looked at last week, and he looks over the heads of of those who were in the crowd and were his disciples. And he sees on the periphery the the Pharisees and the scribes, and he speaks to everyone, but making sure that they can hear. And he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by that oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits Upon it. Now, friends, in those verses, we're going to see three things today that are significant for us to see and to understand about an authentic relationship with God and ultimately what is offered for us in Christ and what was missed by the Pharisees and the scribes. The first thing that we need to see is this Jesus saves and nothing else does. Jesus saves and nothing else 
does. Now, we're going to find this in Matthew 23, verse 13, as Jesus begins this section of woes. But I want us to, to think for a moment about the alternative that Jesus has offered. So the Pharisees were promoting a salvation that was found in religious, religious fervency. But Jesus was offering salvation that was found only in himself. And we see this in a number of different passages in John's gospel, a, a, a gospel that was written for the express purpose of helping us understand that salvation is found in Christ. I want to look just at a few of those verses. One is in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes, but were born of God. Now, I added a little bit there, but in light of what we're reading, I think that's part of what Jesus was saying. Friends, salvation is not found in your Jewishness. It's not found in your ethnicity. It's not found in your bloodline. It's not found in the fact that you grew up in a Christian home or mom and dad were devout followers of, of Christ. Salvation is found not in someone else's decisions, but salvation is found when God extends mercy and grace to you and you embrace it in faith and that mercy and grace is found in Christ. Jesus is quite clear, salvation is found in him and in him alone. Think of maybe the most famous verse in all of John's gospel, John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Where is eternal life found? It is found by embracing what Christ has done for us. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross to take the payment, the penalty that our sins deserve. Either we will pay that payment and penalty ourselves and we'll die in the guilt of our own sin or we can trust in Christ and what he has done for us to pay the penalty for us. Those are the only two options that exist. John 3.16 makes that clear. But also we have John chapter 14 in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say he was a way, he was a truth, and he was a life, but he says, I am the, the, the. If you want to have a relationship with God, Jesus says, you will do so through me. There is no other way. Now, to our modern ears, there may be some in this room that that just bugs you, right? I, I, let's just admit it. How, how can that be? Why so exclusive? What, what's the issue? Why only those who receive Christ become children of God? Why only those who believe in Jesus who was raised on the cross? I, why is that the way? Why is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Let me share an illustration that maybe will help make some sense of this for us Oklahomans. In Oklahoma, there is a thriving business of selling tornado shelters, right? It's, it's a big deal. And, and when you think of the, the tornado shelter, everybody thinks they've built a better mousetrap, right? And you may be that way. You've done the research. You, you wanted the in-ground. You wanted the above-ground. It's like the gun vault thing. You know, you, whatever it is, you, you've got your decision. You made your plan, and you bought your product. 
And the reason why you bought those things is because there was some track record that that would work, right? But, but what happens if a sincere person comes along and tries to sell tornado shelters that are made of refrigerator boxes? And they show up, and they've got a, a great suit, and, and they are smooth. I mean, we're talking Morgan Freeman smooth when they're talking, and they're just, just selling and selling and selling, and the price is right, and we can get it out of your house this afternoon, and we're going to use a staple gun to, to bolt that thing down in your front yard, and, and that's where you're going to find your solace and your protection. And guess what? Inside, it has a great seat cushion, you know, and it comes with a free T-shirt. Um, all of the things, are just, just it's smooth and sincere and just seems like all this great thing. How many of you want to spend even $10 on that? Not 10 maybe somebody wants the T-shirt, but it wouldn't be worth its weight if an F5 blew in, right? And we know that as Oklahomans. Well, friends, I just, as someone who's spent my life reading this book, I, I say this with all sincerity. Everything apart from Christ has the ability to withstand the judgment of God about like a refrigerator box in an F5. If you want to risk your eternity on a refrigerator box, that's your choice. But I would beg you that you would find your protection in someone secure, that you would find your your hope in Christ. Jesus knew that. He knew what he could provide. He knew what the religion of the Pharisees couldn't. And so he invited all to believe him, to find in him the way. Now, what, where do we see that in the passage? Well, he, he says right there to them, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you, you, you deceitful actors. You're selling something that, that doesn't deliver what you're promising. He says, this is what they're doing. You are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus was saying, your way, your answer, your truth, the life that you are promising is a refrigerator box. It won't save you and it won't save anyone else. Now, in context, I think Jesus was also making another point, and that was Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was a real offer of the kingdom when Jesus came, and that involved many things, not just eternal life, but also an earthly kingdom. And it was the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of Israel who rejected that kingdom and have delayed its ultimate blooming into fruition. It's ultimate establishment. The book of Revelation is going to talk about when that kingdom will, will launch for a thousand years plus eternity. The scribes and the Pharisees' rejection kept them and the nation and the world from entering it in the first century. But I think by application, it's also safe to say, Jesus was saying, your, your way, your truth doesn't lead to life. Jesus didn't make this statement because he just wanted to, to pick on them. He wanted to embarrass them. He was vindictive in some weird way. No, he, he made that statement in love so that they would have a chance to repent, 
and so that the nation would have a chance to repent. And every individual in that audience and all of us who read this would have a chance to repent and find our hope in him and not in a box. John MacArthur says this of this passage. He says, regardless of the appealing, benign, and promising front that a false system of religion or philosophy may have, its ultimate accomplishment is to shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. It may feed their bodies, stimulate their minds, and calm their emotions, but it will inevitably damn their souls. It may raise their moral standards, increase their worldly success, overcome practical problems, and improve their outward relationships with other people, but it will not remove their sin or improve their relationship to God. It may promise heaven, but it can only deliver hell. Friends, there are a lot of ways out there, right? A lot of philosophies, a lot of sects, even of, of, of Christianity that would promise life in, in their expression, in their church building, and in, in whatever it might be. Friends, all of those are just boxes. If Christ isn't in there with you, you have no hope at all. Jesus saves, friends, and no one else does. Where are you finding your protection? That's really the question we need to ask. Second thing that we see, though, is that Jesus sanctifies and nothing else does. Jesus sanctifies and nothing else does. Now, when I say sanctifies, what do I mean? That's like a, if a fancy church word, right? Sanctify means to, to, to make holy, to, to refine us more into the life that God has called us to live It's a gradual process, sanctification is, in this life. As we walk with God, he is is shaping us day by day by day by day. And there's none who can sanctify us except Christ. He is the one, if, if you allow me to say it this way, that has the ability to make us better. And by better, I don't mean give us more money or, or something like that. I mean to actually make us in our experience of life more holy, more righteous, more in line with what God is doing. It's not on the basis of, of the, the religion or the code of conduct promoted by some showy religion of some kind, but it's, it's found only in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 Paul writes in his letter there, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a commitment that God has to mature us and to grow us, not through any way, but through Christ. He's so committed, he's he's moved in. The, The Spirit has come to reside within us, to develop and to grow us in our experience of Christianity. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 down through chapter 2, verse 7 says this. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's that sanctification process. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It is in Christ that we are sanctified. It is in following him, the grace that God gives and the faith that we respond with. That is how we grow in our relationship with him. But there are so many other things in this world that promise to develop and to grow us. And and Paul knew that. 
So right after making that statement that it's in Christ that we, 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 just as we have received him, so we follow him and he matures us that way, what does he say is an enemy of that? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, like the Pharisees and the scribes, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been fulfilled or been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It is not inappropriate, friends, for us to turn to Christ and not to some other system, because it is only Christ who has all rule and authority. It's only Christ who who has the ability to fill us and to develop us and to sanctify us over time. So if we are experiencing not just our salvation, but our experience of the daily Christian life, if it is just about do's and don'ts and there is no Jesus in there, there's no power in there. The hope of the gospel propels us on even today. Jesus sanctifies, friends, and nothing else does, including the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we see that in verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus again repeats his woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you deceitful actors, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, I think it's sentences like that is why John Walford said these are some of the harshest words in the Scripture, right? But what's he really getting at? Well, Jesus was acknowledging that there had been some new evangelistic fervency that had come back to Judaism. God had intended that the nation of Israel would be a city on a hill from the start, but they had wandered away from that reality. But in the first century, Pharisees were interested in making proselytes, making disciples, But they were not interested in making just any old disciple. They wanted to make someone that didn't follow God. They wanted to make someone who didn't follow the Messiah, Jesus, when he showed up. They wanted to make someone that followed them. They wanted to replicate their behavior in others. And apparently they would go to great extents to lead people into their way of thinking, to indoctrinate them into their practice. In those ways, I'm sure that they believed that they were making life better for those individuals. Again, not, I'm not talking about money in your pocket or, or titles and those things, but better in the sense of that their lives would be more improved in their experience of God's best for them. I believe that they probably felt that. And yet what Jesus was saying is, people who follow you, Pharisees and scribes, Life doesn't get better for them. It's worse. Second-generation Pharisees are the worst. That's a quote from the original language. As if if the Pharisees themselves weren't bad enough, the second generation might be worse. And and here's why. A Pharisee that grew up with an understanding of, of God's Word, they had read the Old Testament, they had read the law, but they had added onto it all the other vestiges of religion they had brought in, still had some core of truth that they had learned. But a a Gentile God-fearer that became a proselyte who was brought into the, the faith, they may only learn the Pharisee way. 
and they may not have the Scripture at the core. This is part of the challenge with, with any partial truth today. In, in its initial edition, the person that, that, that promotes a belief maybe has you know, a governor on them in some way and that they understand the, the truth at least a little bit that prevents them from just pursuing falsehood alone. But their disciples might only have the falsehood left. Jesus said, Pharisees, your behavior is not making things better for those who follow you, but it's making them worse. And not only that, but they are becoming further and further lost because they believe they have found the Savior that is not saving them at all. They believe they found the system that will make them more righteous, but it is absolutely unable to do that. Friends, at the core, I think for us, we need to ask ourselves, is our understanding of the Christian life, is it about a set of rules and regulations, or is Jesus at the center of it? Now, Jesus taught commands for us to follow and believe. I'm not saying that those things won't be a part of it. But if we believe that we can improve ourselves Just like if we believe we could save ourselves, if we believe we can sanctify ourselves through our effort, then we are sadly mistaken. There's no power in that. Jesus makes it clear that salvation is found only in him and sanctification is found only in him. Are we looking to something else? Are we looking to him to save us and to grow us? Jesus sanctifies. The third thing that we see, though, is this. Jesus supports Scripture like no one else. Jesus supports Scripture like nobody else. Now, friends, this is, this is true throughout Jesus' ministry. He came and lived a life and taught messages that, that were at odds with the life that was lived by the Pharisees and the messages that they taught. They, they were in different camps, so much so that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, right? Not figuratively, literally. They wanted to to get rid of him. There was such difference between them. And because of that, the Pharisees, looking at Jesus, were, were, were saying to him things like, you don't really take the word of God seriously. Just look at how you're healing people on the Sabbath. How dare you? But Jesus made some statements about the Scripture that were really important for us to see. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, for you to understand what they're really all about. If you want to know what the Sabbath laws are all about, Jesus says, Watch me live them out, because I'm going to live them out perfectly. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has a very unique expression of of the, 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 the life that is here. As I stand up to teach, friends, I want you to know that I do my absolute best to, to pray and to study and to stand up here and tell you what I believe this says. But here's the thing. If you sit in here long enough, I will probably say something that is wrong. You realize that? Now, how's that for confidence from the preacher? 
Um, You're not here to blindly follow me. We're here to follow Jesus together. We do our best to, to point in this direction, but we could be wrong. But what Jesus was saying was, he was saying, guess what? I've never been wrong. In one thing I've said, Jesus says, I've never said it wrong. In everything I've done, Jesus says, I've never done it wrong. If you want to know what it looks like to live out God's calling, Jesus says, look at me. God didn't just give us another manual. He gave himself for us to see lived out in three dimensions what it looks like to live out the Scripture and to, and, and to support it. And so Jesus becomes our interpretive principle. He becomes the answer to what it looks like to live out these challenging things that we read in Scripture. Now, I say all of that because that's super important when we look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in 23, verses 16 through 22. See, in, in, in those verses, Jesus is going to describe something that the Pharisees were doing as it related to their living out uh, of, of the law. See, they believed that they could do everything that the law promised. And the way that they ensured that was they came up with a number of, of rules to govern their behavior that made it possible for them to live out the teaching of the law and the prophets. And one of those areas had to do with telling the truth. Now, we're not to lie. We are to, to be truthful in what we, in what we say. But the Pharisees had come up with an elaborate system that allowed them to sometimes not say the truth, but have you think that they were saying the truth? No one in this room has ever struggled with that. By laughter, I would say that we understand what was going on. But, but what they were doing, what they were doing, is they would, they would swear by different things. And, and Jesus gave several examples in here. It's, it's almost humorous when you think about it, but they, they would say, if anybody swears by the temple, it is nothing. So if somebody said, hey, I swear by the temple that, uh, you know, I'm going to have pizza for lunch today. You know, it would be more significant than that, but the, I swear by the temple that I'm going to have pizza for lunch today. But because I swore by the temple and not by the gold of the temple, I was not bound to actually eat pizza for lunch. In other words, I could just deceive you in some way. Now, if I said, I'm, I swear by the gold of the temple that I'm going to eat pizza for lunch, and I didn't eat pizza, then I was lying. And there were a number of different things. And Jesus gives three examples. And I, I'm guessing as he's giving these examples, if they had any self-awareness at all, they're looking at their sandals while he's saying this, right? Because it just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I can swear by the temple, but not by the gold of the temple. I can swear by the, by, by the altar, but not what sits on the altar. He goes on and on and on and on and on, all these, all these crazy things. And what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, is he says, just be truthful. He wasn't condoning some form of swearing. Okay, so swear this way. And you know why I know that? When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, what does he say about swearing? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In Matthew 5, 34, he, he's, he says in, in, in that context, hey, just be truthful. That's what righteousness looks like with our mouths. And, and Jesus says a, a very similar thing to the Pharisees here by just exposing one ugly side of it. The Pharisees, stop trying to figure out a way to sin and make it okay so that you can say you're actually keeping the law. Just be truthful. Just be truthful. 
But guess what? They couldn't be truthful all the time. And for the Pharisee and the scribe, that was a terrible dilemma. Because if your salvation is found in your adherence to the law, what happens when you cannot adhere to the law? You're lost forever. They couldn't deal with that. They came up with a system that redefined the law so that they could do it. But what was Jesus offering that was so different? Jesus didn't lower the bar. He cleared it. But here's the beautiful thing. He cleared it and invited us to clear it with him. Jesus said, I can jump over the top of that standard. I will never not fulfill it. And if you are with me, I will take the penalty that your sin deserves. And and with me, we will fly all the way to heaven. That's the way over the bar. That's the way to live it out. The scribes and the Pharisees had no category for that. They were looking only to their own performance. And so they had to come up with all these convoluted rules to get there. Friends, today in our lives, are there any convoluted rules that we've come up with so that we can have a Jesusless religion? Any, any, any edges that might be there? How about loving our neighbor as ourselves? You know how we can live that out without Jesus? We define who our neighbor is. Jesus actually gave a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, just so that we couldn't do that because he wanted us to know that he's going to clear the bar every time. And you might go, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't love everybody with that kind of sacrifice. There's so many needs in the world. There's so many people around. And guess what the answer to that is? You're right, you can't. But Jesus can. And as a body of believers, his hands and feet spread all over this city, Not just those in this room and not just those at 11 o'clock, but those who follow Christ all over this area. We have the opportunity to to love as Jesus loves by all of us doing so, even though our part of that expression is just one little piece. We can't do it all, but Christ can. We can't do it perfectly, but he offers forgiveness. Friends, in, in a message where we are talking about the woes that Jesus pronounces on sin and how salvation is found only in him. If we are self-aware at all, at some point we are staring at our sandals. And that's why we want to end our service today, not by singing a woe-oh-oh song, but we want to sing a song of hope. We want to sing a song about our sins being many, but his mercy is more. Lord, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to gather and to worship today. We thank you for um, the the reality that Jesus doesn't settle um, for the brand and version of religiousness that he sees, but but he challenges it so that we might not find our protection in that box as well. Father, may we find our hope and our salvation and our protection in Christ alone whose mercy is enough to cover all of our sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name.